morning. Take your Bibles, turn to the first book of Thessalonians. If you don't know where Thessalonians is, um, it's in northern Greece. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, go to Revelation, hang a left, and just keep turning pages. You'll find it eventually. Uh, I, I, love, I love preaching through books of the Bible. I love the study of the Word of God because I believe the Word of God never returns void. It, it, it bears fruit. And so over the next uh, really two months, uh, we're going to be looking at the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Would, um, would you agree with me we live in a tough time? Anybody, can I get an amen? We live in an uncertain time. We don't know what's going on in our country, really, economically or politically. Uh, the world is in chaos. It, it, it just seems severe. Uh, it seems uncertain. The book of Thessalonians is going to speak to us because they lived in a severe uncertain time. And what Paul is encouraging them in this book, you'll see, is to stand on the one thing they know they can stand on, which is faith. Their faith in God will preserve them. Their faith in God will help them to keep moving forward. See, here, here's part of my contention in doing this book. If we keep our eyes fixed on circumstances and situations, if we fix our eyes on people as our hope, if we fix our eyes on anything other than our God, then we will be shaken. Because God is shaking everything that can be shaken so that that which can't be shaken remains. So what can't be shaken? Faith. Our faith needs to grow. Our faith needs to expand. We need to keep our eyes on him. And Thessalonians is a book that speaks to these issues. And so I'm going to try not to teach too much, like be a teacher about Thessalonica and everything, but I can't help myself uh, a little bit. Uh, just to give you a, a setup of the book, Go read Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, not now. <clears throat> Some of you are like, okay. No, wait. You can read it later, but read Acts chapter 17. And that'll give you the kind of background to what's taking place here in this city called Thessalonica. If you'll recall, Paul and Silas have gone on a missionary journey. They get to a certain point, and Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. Up until this point, the gospel has never left what would be called the Middle East and Asia. And now it's going to enter into Europe because Macedonia at the time was just north of Greece, considered Europe. So Paul gets his vision, come to Macedonia. So Paul does. He fulfills the vision that God gives him. He goes to Philippi establishes a church there, goes from Philippi over to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is, at the time, in Macedonia. 
It's a city of some 200,000 people, which is really big for this day and age. Very important port city, a very important trade city. It's a big, it's a big deal. And nowadays, it's, it's one of the cities in the New Testament that still is there. Uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, if, if you're over in... Um, it's, it's a very popular city. It's still very thriving, now a population. It's the second largest city in Greece, I think. Well over a million people. Very important, very important city. Paul goes in. He starts teaching. Do you remember what Paul's usual habit of teaching was? Yes, he would go to the synagogue first. So on three consecutive Sabbaths, he goes to the synagogue and begins to preach Jesus. Now, generally, at some point, Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, once, he once the Jews realize, hey, wait a minute, what this guy is teaching and bringing people to Jesus, he almost always gets kicked out. But usually he stays in the city and teaches and um, starts gathering Gentiles to himself. Well, what happens at Thessalonica is the Jews are a very prominent uh, merchant group in this city at the time. And so they go down to the city square and they rouse up some ne'er-do-wells. Um, those are people who don't do well. Uh, those ne'er-do-wells never do well. Um, and brings them and basically causes a riot. They go to this guy's house named Jason. Jason is where... Paul and Silas and Timothy have been staying, and they cause a riot. They find that Paul and Silas aren't there, so they haul Jason out. All heck breaks loose. Um, things finally get settled down, but Paul and Silas have to flee the city. Now, they've been there three weeks, basically. Three Sabbaths they've taught there, but they leave a thriving church behind. It's really incredible if you think about it. Three weeks. You've got an apostle with you three weeks. And he leaves a thriving church. He leaves Timothy back to kind of help establish things. Paul and Silas go to Berea, which isn't that far away. And, and I think it's like a five-day walk. I, I consider... they say that's not that far away. Seems like a good ways to me. Five-day walk. Timothy joins them later. They go from Berea down to Athens. You can follow all this in the book of Acts. Go down to Athens where Paul teaches on Mars Hill and all the things that happen in Athens. Timothy goes back to help with the church in Thessalonica again. Paul and Silas go on. Am I boring you to death? Everybody with me still? I love this stuff. I'm sorry if you don't. Just hang with me. I'll get through it, and then we'll actually start looking at the Bible, um, the Thessalonian book here in just a second. So they go from Athens to Corinth, book of Corinthians, right? In Corinth, Paul is going to stay for a long time, I think like two years. He's going to be there for a long time. Timothy comes back down from, now he's getting further and further away from Thessalonica, by the way. Timothy, poor Timothy, good to be young, right? It's traveling back and forth. Timothy comes down to Corinth where he shares with Paul what's going on in the Thessalonican church. And so Paul writes, here we go, he writes a letter to send back with Timothy 
to, to share with them some things. This is somewhere between 51 and 53 AD, we think. Um, the, most scholars believe the book of 1 Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul wrote. Uh, it's the earliest one. Some have said Galatians, but most scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians is his first letter uh, chronologically. So you get some early things from Paul in this letter written, written to the Thessalonian church. So over the next six, eight weeks, I can't remember how long we outlined this. I think it's like eight or nine weeks, maybe 12. I don't know. It's a while. <laughs> we're going to look at the book of First and Second Thessalonians. So I want to encourage you. Look up here for just a second. When I say encourage, I mean I want you to do this. I want you to read the book through. Like, I'm taking it apart, like this week I'm doing chapter one. But there, you know, Paul didn't write in chapters and verses. He just wrote a letter. So it'd be great if you just sat down and in one sitting read the, the chapters, six chapters, I think, of 1 Thessalonians. Just read them through. And then when we get to 2 Thessalonians, we'll talk about, we'll talk about it more in, in detail. So today, excited? We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1. And I love, at times, just going through the Word of God. So I love preaching topics like I've done over the past five or six weeks where I've talked about what God spoke to me on sabbatic. But I also love just reading the Word of God and seeing what it will say to us. And so that's what we're going to do today. We are, we're basically doing a Bible study. We're looking at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Have you got it? In front of you, I mean, you can depend on me on the screen, but I would love for you to have your own Bible or your own screen. Most of you have Bibles on your phones. So let's look at this together. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Up here one second. This is just a typical introduction, salutation, dear so-and-so, dear TV. But that's kind of, this is that typical introduction. But he always says grace and peace to you. He introduces himself. Paul and Silas and Timothy are together. Probably Luke is with them as well, by the way, um, at this point. Verse uh, going on. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I like the way Paul introduces this. <laughs> we, we always thank God for all of you. <clears throat> I've been a pastor a long time. And to look at any church and to say, I always thank God for all of you all of the time, that, that's a response of faith. I mean, really, um, anybody who works with groups of people will say, I give thanks all the time for about 95% and a good day. But to say, I thank God for all of you all of the time, what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, my view of you is not dependent on you or circumstances. My view of you is viewed through the lens of what God has done in your life. 
You are the redeemed people of God. And therefore, I can look at you and say, thank God for all of you, for all of the time, despite you and despite me. He goes on and says this. Look at, look at, I love this next phrases. And I don't know if you've noticed, but he first says, your work produced by faith. Your work produced by faith. <clears throat> Hundreds of years, the church has battled over whether it's faith or work, right? If, is it faith or work? You know, for, for some 1,500 years, um, throughout the history of the church within the Catholicism and the Catholic Church, one of the things that unfortunately rose up was that, that it works going to church and following the rules and confession and certain activities resulted in your standing before God. Now, this was, I, this was not purposeful. This was kind of the step-by-step -step progression of the way we as men, even godly men, take the message. So in 15, when Luther rises up, he and the other reformers say, no, it's, it's by faith alone. It's by scripture alone that we have right standing before God. But what gets lost many times in the reformer's message is that faith does in fact produce works. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the book of James. Luther struggled with the book of James. He wished it wasn't in the Bible. I mean, he's made clear. I wish, you know, like the, the whole faith without works is dead. Now, here's what Paul is saying. You have work, but it's produced by faith. Your works flow out of your faith. But he's encouraging, and remember, this is Paul's first letter. He's encouraging them not to minimize the idea of work. Works, but are produced by faith. I'll just cut to the chase here real quick. You can't have right standing before God based on your works. But you can't have faith that doesn't process works. The two go hand in hand. It's by grace you have been saved, that through faith, not by works, because you would boast. But, Paul's going to say in Ephesians, you are God's workmanship, produced in advance to do good work. You're his masterpiece. So faith produces your work produced by faith. Then he goes on and talks about your labor, your labor prompted by love. Your labor, and really he's saying your service. Your service prompted by love. I've heard it said before that um, you can serve without loving, but you can't love without serving. That eventually love should produce in you some level of service. Your service, which is prompted by your love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Now, these are going to be three huge themes, especially the final one. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, endurance is going to be that, that idea that you're going to stand up under the pressures of the world, and you can do it because you have hope. And again, we've talked about this in the past, but hope is not like wishful thinking. Hope is not like, 
Uh, I hope Auburn wins next week. That's not even hope. That's like, um, hope, hope is something you stand up under. It's a, an assurance that what God has promised has just yet to come to pass. That's the biblical definition of hope. And so he's saying you can endure through anything, and we have no idea what they're going to go through. We think things are tough, and they could very well get tougher. I, I'm going to say they probably will. I'm not a prophet, or, but at the same time, just the evidence of what I'm seeing around me is saying, wow, things are tough and getting tougher. How am I going to respond? Well, I can respond with endurance because I have hope. Not based on circumstances, but on the things that are... Now, I don't know if you noticed, but Paul, early on, it's work produced by faith, love prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. Faith, hope, and love. He's already putting it before the Thessalonican church, which he's going to reiterate to the Corinthian church on love. But these three great pillars of the church, faith, hope, and love, they produce work, labor, and endurance. Hello? Should kind of stir us up, or you should say, oh, what this is not my fave. You know? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This, means, this looks like i got to do something. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's part of the message. Yes, we have faith, hope, and love, but they produce in us what? Work, service, and endurance. Those aren't bad words. All right, we'll get to those in the weeks ahead. That's the intro. Here's what I want you to see about the gospel that Paul is then going to proclaim in verses 4 and following. And this is really where I want to sit within the sermon just for a minute. And honestly, I don't think this will take long, but you never know with me. Um, The first point is this. The gospel has to be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. Verses 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Here's the idea. The gospel has to be proclaimed in some way. It has to be brought to people. And Paul is saying, I brought you the gospel. I brought it to you. And how did he bring it, by the way? He brought it with words. He he says, because our gospel came to you, and he says, not simply with words, but within that context means there were words. When he says not, he's going to say there's more than words, but he's going to say you've got to at least have the words as well. Don't minimize and say, oh, you know what Paul's saying is uh, you proclaim the gospel not with words, but how you live your life. Well, he's, he's going to say that too, but he is going to say without words, where is the gospel? He, he, he's not just, are you with me? With, he, there's got to be words, but it's not simply words. There's more than just words. Here's the idea. Sometimes, again, I'm trying to keep us out of ditches. Ditches, I'm saying. Um, I'm trying to keep us from falling off the road somewhere. And sometimes people think, oh, I can't can't give the gospel because I don't have the right words. Well, you've got enough words. 
to proclaim the gospel. Trust me. You've got enough. But at the same time, it's not just about me teaching you some intellectual conversation to have with someone about the gospel. I mean, we can train people to say the words. And the words are critical, but there is more than words. He goes on and says this. He says, but also with power. Words and power combined begin to bring the gospel. It's this idea that the gospel breaks people free. Listen, how do, how do people get free from these burdens we were talking about? Habits, sin patterns, ways of thinking. I got to tell you, my efforts to intellectually convince people to stop sinning have almost always failed. Even though they're dang brilliant. They're good words. And they make sense. But very seldom, almost never, words on their own come up short. Now, words are powerful and the Holy Spirit can ignite them. But he, he's, that's what he's saying here. It, there's got to be a power source behind the words. There's got to be more than words. And that's how he brought it. And he goes on and says, with deep conviction, meaning totally, he's totally convinced of this. This is not just, eh, maybe. No, this is, I stake my life on this good news, this gospel. It, it comes to you with both words and with power and conviction, and it's all covered in the person of the Holy Spirit. That really, the message of the Holy Spirit. Here's my, um, it's been my conviction for years about sharing the gospel. We have to share it with words, but we have to do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. There's got to be these two great streams, as we proclaim over and over again, 100% of truth and 100% of the power and presence of the Spirit of God. In the proclamation of the gospel and people's lives will be changed. Somebody say amen. It is what is said in the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. All in this, I see words and power, conviction, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, again, my background as a Baptist was many times, this is, this, next to John 3.16, this was the second verse we memorized in Baptist world. But what I missed in my Baptist heritage early on, I, I knew I had to go and I knew I had to share, and I knew I had to teach, but somebody forgot early on to tell me it was in the power of the Holy Spirit. We forgot the Acts 1-8 part, go and wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then go and proclaim the good news of the gospel. We can't do it without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the gospel has to be proclaimed. That's what Paul did. 
in Thessalonica. And then the gospel, to make a difference, it's got to be received. This may sound a little obvious to you, but look what he goes on and says. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Models. They received the word of God. Okay, again, look, look at me just for a second. When Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed going out. And the seed is what? The word of God. And the word of God, it hits all these different types of soil. And he eventually talks about the soil represents the state of the heart of the person receiving the word of God. One of the things we, we have to understand is when we share the gospel with people, sometimes their heart their soil is just, it can't receive it. It's not in a receptive position. And then there are other times when people, you just share, you, they'll be like, tell, tell me more. I want to know. I want to know. How do I, how do I get saved? Kind of thing. The, the, the difference maker again to me is the person work of the Holy Spirit. Preparing their heart to receive the word of God. And I would also like to say that... <laughs> This continues in you for all time. Whether you receive the truth of the word of God depends on the state of your heart. You need to keep your heart soft before God so that when the word is proclaimed, whether it's here or in some other setting or just you reading the word of God, that your heart is soft to receive God's word so that it in turn would take root, spring to life, and bear much fruit. Again, you can say amen any place in there. <laughs> look, at what, look, at, look at their circumstances, though. He says, you became imitators of us and the Lord in spite of what? Severe suffering. It's not dependent on your circumstances. You, you were suffering, and yet you received it. And you did it in joy. The gospel is what? Good news. It's good news. Remember the angel it says when uh, on the night of Jesus, I bring you good tidings of great good news brings joy. It brings joy. In spite, what, what, what are you going to do in the middle of severe suffering? Uh, it's terrible. You know, where's God in this? What, why is he? No, you can have great joy in the midst of just Horrible circumstances. Why? Because your joy is not dependent on your circumstances. Severe suffering, in spite of that, they received it in joy given by the Holy Spirit. And as in turn, Paul imitated, they imitated what they saw in Paul and as a result become a model. They received the message. Now, to me, this, this kind of uh, pictures in, in some ways what happens when the gospel hits us. Suffering, in this world, you will have tribulations. I'm quoting lines here from the Bible, in case you wondered. In this world, you will have trouble. Well, that doesn't sound like a prosperity doctrine to me. In this world, you're going to have problems. But take 
joy. Take heart because I've overcome the world. You're going to have severe sufferings when you receive the gospel, and they're undergoing it. You know, when Paul left, the Jewish people who were really mad at Paul for sharing it, they follow him to Berea, and they cause a problem there. Then they go back home, and they, wait, wait, there are believers back there that Paul left. Let's go get them. So they go back, and they cause them problems. They're undergoing problems, severe suffering, not just minor, not just some problems here and there, severe suffering. And in the middle of it, they find real joy and to the point they become models of the Holy Spirit, which leads to the third point, which is this, the gospel must be embodied. The gospel, we are, we are the body of Christ, right? Which means that we are Jesus here now. So the gospel, the good news, which is that you were a sinner, but Christ died for you, to forgive you of your sins, restore your relationship with God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that we sang about earlier, you receiving him, then you, he dwells in you. And we together embody the power and presence of the Lord. Here's what he says. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Wow, I, I want this to be said about me. The Lord's message rang out from me. Wouldn't you like that to be the testimony of our church too? The message, the Lord, it rang out from me. Not only in my hometown, but in the whole region. Our faith in God gets known everywhere. What is the church too often known for? Well, most of the time, the church, because of our emphasis on works or emphasis on the wrong thing, has become known for what we're against. Or we've been known for, I, I hate to even fill in the blanks, but it could be anything from we're known for being against this specific sin or this specific relationship, or this specific political party, or this specific economic policy, or this. The church becomes known for all sorts of stuff. Instead, our call is to become known for our faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what else. If we're going to embody what Jesus has done in our lives, and who he is we need our message to ring out to everyone around us. He goes on and says, Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. He's going on talking about how they received. And then he goes on and says, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the first chapter of the book of Thessalonians. How, real quickly, how did they embody how did they embody the message that they had received? First of all, they turned to God from idols. This is such a big deal for them that people are noting it. Hey, they're not serving idols anymore. Listen, <clears throat> Whenever I read these passages from the New Testament, everybody always says, I've never worshipped an idol. 
I don't have a little statue at home that I go home and I bow down to and I ask for. I'm way beyond that. I'm too sophisticated to worry about worshiping a little statue or something like that. Listen, everyone who doesn't follow Christ puts their trust in something. And for them, it's an idol. Now, it's different. And even those of us who follow Jesus Christ, at times, if we're not careful, we end up putting our confidence, our trust, our faith in something from education to finances to governmental systems to relationships. Hey, I got, let me just throw this out there. I'm not even going to preach on it. You can just take it and chew on it a little, little for later. But whatever you put in tr- your trust in, whatever. Other than God, God will shake it. If you put your trust in finances, God will shake it. If you put your trust in people, God will shake them in your eyes. If you put your trust in political things, God will shake it. It's my conviction. Everything that can't be shaken will be shaken, so that which can't be shaken will remain. Why? Because God will not share his glory with another. He wants you. And if you're going to embody... What he wants and what they testified to, we turn from idols. And by the way, you don't just turn from something, you have to turn to something. They turned from idols to what? To serving the living and true God. This whole idea of repentance, by the way, I'm walking this direction, serving whatever the case may be, idols. And repent means to have a change of mind, change of direction. So now, I'm going this direction, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to move in this direction. I move from serving this, and I move to serving him. Repentance is not repentance if you just turn away from and stop. Repentance is turning away from and moving toward. It's this change of direction. And they're going to wait. They have this hope to wait For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, if you're just reading Thessalonians out of context and you get to this last phrase, you're like, that seems to come from nowhere. he's, He's talking about they turn from God, from idols to serve God. But can't you think of 20 other phrases he could have used here? To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Is the second coming and eschatology really the emphasis you would think Paul would place on this church? Well, (laughs) this is what's funny about the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. A lot of it has to do with the end times. It's one of the reasons I I wanted to do these two books is because... They're enamored with the return of Christ. and eschat- So much so that they got the, they've got the idea, oh, Jesus is going to return. It could be any day, so I'm going to quit my job and just sit around and do nothing until he comes back. Paul directly addresses this issue coming up. I mean, there are issues that have happened. Here's what cracks me up about this. Imagine for yourself that um, you've gone to a new city. You've been there for how long was Paul in Thessalonica? Three weeks. Three weeks. What would you teach 
brand new believers in the only three weeks you have. Well, at some point, Paul taught him about the second coming. He's, he, in three weeks, he's taking on eschatology. To the point, he didn't get to quite finish, evidently. He introduced it. They've kind of taken and run with it. But they believe it. They may not believe all the right things, but they believe, they believe it so much they're quitting their jobs and sitting around. They believe it. Now, this is a testimony to him that they have embodied the message of Christ, that they have hope, they have confidence that Jesus will come back. Do you know, this is an essential for our faith, is the return of Christ. This is not an optional thing. You know, I, I believe uh, Jesus came, died, went to heaven. My sins are forgiven, but is he really going to come back? Is he really going to return or are we just all going to die and eventually kill our planet and kill each other and everything's going to die and then mankind's going to be obliterated from the earth? But it's all right. I'll be in heaven. No, there's, there is hope in the message of the return of Christ. There is restoration and Paul is going to help point us in this direction. I just think it's remarkable that in three weeks he's taught the church about this. I had the opportunity in the early 90s, mid-90s, to go to Albania, which at that point, it had been a totally atheistic country. Communism falls. Gospel goes in. I mean, people who didn't have a Bible, and there wasn't even an Albanian translation of the Bible um, until right when I went in. My dad had been a couple of times. It was the first mission trip I went on with Darren. We went in and um, taught. I taught the book of Romans. Um, it was unbelievable. Just the, I, I, I mean, just the, my, my dad said he would talk to, when he first went, which was about a year before I went, he went in on his first trip and he said, okay, let's talk about um, um, this passage where it talks about when Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. In the New Testament, he would talk about, he, and he could see him, like, talking, and, and uh, he said, I'm sorry, what's, what's the matter? And they say, who is this Moses you're talking about? Who's Moses? And he goes, you don't know Moses? No, Jesus we know. But Moses we never heard of. Who is this Moses? I mean, that was the level of, now, obviously, the Jews had a little better background. But he jumps straight to eschatology and the end of time. Why? Because it's important and critical for our faith. And here is, I think, the cycle of the gospel. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be received. And it has to be embodied. Why does it have to be embodied? So that it can be proclaimed and others can receive and then be embodied. This is the... This is the cycle, so to speak, the, the way the gospel goes forth through you and me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. 
We want to be a disciple-making church. means when you leave this place, find a way to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the words he's given you, in a way that people can be set free and they can receive it. No matter what they're going through, they can receive it and then it in turn can be embodied. We're going to enjoy this journey to move forward in our faith. What are you facing in your life right now? What situations, what circumstances are you facing? My prayer for us today is no matter what we're facing, that our faith would move us forward. Stand up with me, if you would, and we're going to make a confession of our faith based on this passage from Thessalonians. And then before we leave, I want us to just worship, to worship this Lamb of God. Just follow as I read.